Whether you love him or hate him, in 1992, when the first audiences saw this little animated melodrama playing before the first episode of Batman the Animated Series, no one had to ask what they were watching. A title wasn't necessary. Many Batman fans consider it to be their definitive version of the character, and a lot of fans of animation in general point to Batman as the most influential animated show of its time. Its style was lovingly based on the Max Fleischer Superman cartoons of the early 40s, designed to tell much of its story visually rather than relying solely on dialogue to drive the narrative. But at the same time, the voice cast is one of the show's greatest assets also, using some of the best talent of its day to create thrilling, fascinating, and very human stories. Bruce Timm and his team set the best example possible. They told stories they wanted to see, rather than simply pandering to the Saturday morning kitty audience or creating a half-hearted cartoon copy of Tim Burton's Batman film, the success of which spawned the series in the first place. It strikes an uncanny balance between telling adult stories and being accessible to children. It challenges both in various ways and will continue to hold up as the years go by by keeping its time period ambiguous with its mix of styles of fashion, cars, technology, etc. I'm not sure its influence on future Batman stories or on animation or comic book art can be overestimated, and its reputation is well-deserved. But like all things, it wasn't a perfect show, and some episodes are better than others. It didn't always succeed at staying timeless. Look at the virtual reality technology in the Riddler episode, What is Reality? While the often hilarious and sensual Harley Quinn is now a staple of the Batman universe, and for a lot of fans it's hard to think about the Joker without thinking about her, not all of its original characters were as inspired, like the Russian assassin Red Claw, who invaded Catwoman's two-part first appearance and seemed to come out of nowhere. Not every Joker episode was genius either, like Be a Clown, in which Mayor Hill learns the importance of family when a son is kidnapped by the Joker, disguised as a birthday clown, whom no one suspects despite his face being on the birthday cake. The producers apparently had a weird fascination with the artificially intelligent Hardak, which I never understood, who got a completely unnecessary and uninspired sequel. And though he does have some decent appearances in episodes featuring an ensemble of villains, the Penguin never got a great story of his own, and I've Got Batman in My Basement is infamous among most fans for being the show's worst episode. But out of the 85 originally run episodes, almost all are worth watching for one reason or another, and even the most mediocre stories are still beautifully animated and well-scored by Shirley Walker. But more than a handful are exceptional. I had an impossible time choosing only ten, and an even more impossible time putting them in an order. Now, I chose these episodes just from the original run, not including anything from the new Batman Adventures, but I am, of course, counting the period where the title was changed to The Adventures of Batman and Robin. There are certainly some great episodes in the new Batman Adventures, too, and while it's technically a new batch of episodes of the same show, the animation style is quite a bit different, and the focus, as mandated by Warner Brothers, was on the Bat family rather than on Batman himself. I also decided to put together a list that I thought best showcased episodes that tell great stories in the standard 22-minute format. It's one of the most impressive things about the show is its cinematic three-act feel, while only having the normal cartoon show running time to work within. So I haven't selected any two-parters, though some of those are absolutely some of the best work in the show, especially Two-Face, with its fantastic interpretation of Two-Face's origin and the tragedy not only of how Two-Face is driven insane by his war with Rupert Thorne, but also of Batman losing his friend Harvey Dent and being unable to save him. Feet of Clay is also a brilliant episode, with another of the show's more sympathetic villains with Matt Hagen, and Robin's Reckoning, a great example of how to mix in an origin with a story that takes place in the present and relate them in believable ways. So now, without further gushing over the series itself, it's time to gush over individual episodes as I reveal my personal top ten single-part episodes of Batman the Animated Series. Number ten, Trial. 
A later episode in the series, this one features most of Batman's Rose Gallery, as they put Batman on trial for being responsible for creating each of them. They each get on the witness stand to try to blame Batman for their becoming criminals. Two faces the prosecution, though in a funny scene, we find that he would have been fine with just shooting Batman in the head, but he lost the coin toss. And the Joker, naturally, is the judge, proclaiming Batman guilty before the trial even starts, but going along with the whole thing, presumably because he's just having fun role-playing. Harvey forces the new DA to act as Batman's defense. She's been on a crusade against Batman in the public media before she's kidnapped and thrown into the charade, and she's really the character who goes through a major arc. Batman tells her to go through with it to buy them some time, and she finds herself proving Batman's innocence while listening to each villain's motivations for the horrible things they've done, discovering that Batman didn't create them as she herself has accused him of, but rather that they would have turned out exactly the same way without him, and that he's a necessary evil because so many of these super criminals exist in Gotham. She and Batman have a wonderful exchange at the end where she admits she was wrong, but she also says that she plans to work toward a Gotham that has no need for him. And he responds with, so will I. Unlike the 89 film, this series explored Batman as a character, but rarely resorted to having him act out of character to let us in and see what made him tick. He keeps things to himself, he usually tries to go it alone, and he's not one to volunteer information unless he absolutely has to. So we would often learn about Batman through someone else's eyes, and I thought it was a great conceit here, using the DA to explore whether Batman really is a hero, or if he's unintentionally as much of a menace as the costume villains he brings to justice, and if he maybe even belongs in the asylum with them. Number nine, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? The debut of The Riddler, which turned out to be a smart and surprisingly modern take on him, expertly voiced by John Glover. Edward Nigma is a software developer who creates a challenging computer game about solving riddles to get through a maze. He foolishly signs a contract that makes the software company non-liable to give him royalties, and he wants revenge on the greedy CEO for swindling him out of what he thinks is rightfully his after he's fired for suing the company. So later he becomes the Riddler, and commandeers the real-life replica of the game in an amusement park, a giant maze complete with a minotaur in the middle, ever ready to impale his old boss, and the flying mechanical hand of fate that picks you up and puts you in a random part of the maze whenever you incorrectly answer a riddle. And the Hand of Fate is one of those things that is seared in my brain from watching this when it was on when I was a kid. What I love about this episode is that the Riddler is given a pretty plausible backstory and motive that he's completely out of touch with reality, and he's a commentary on people who are so smart they have no common sense. Proving his genius becomes an obsession for Nygma, and after this episode, he'll focus that obsession on intellectually beating Batman. The riddles aren't the silly, impossible-to-solve, but Batman can solve them anyway kind of riddles from the 60s show. These are well varied, and you, the viewer, can enjoy trying to figure them out along with Batman rather than throwing your hands in the air at how preposterous they are. Some get pretty clever, like the keys Batman and Robin have to pull marked A, C, and D. When they pull the wrong key, giant, jagged projectiles come at them, and they realize that the correct key is C because in music, the key of C has no sharps. And the Riddler is a worthy opponent for Batman because he actually gets away at the end, which is kind of unusual. We find at the end that he's not even in the amusement park, but on a plane headed out of the country. And Riddler's old boss, who, despite the fact that Enigma signed a contract, really is pretty crooked himself, is all alone in his big house, holding a gun and scared to death, knowing Riddler's out there. Batman ends the episode with his own riddle. How much is a good night's sleep worth? It's never black and white in this show. Often there's the costume villain, and then there's the more subtle villain in an expensive suit, who's partially responsible for creating the costume villain. 
Number eight, Beware the Great Ghost. This episode is a love letter to old adventure serials and to the often typecast actors who played those roles. The Great Ghost is actually an old TV show here, but it's obviously coming out of that serial tradition. The episode is about never being too old or washed out to make a difference, and it's also about perception. The actor who played the Great Ghost may not have been a real superhero like Batman, but he discovers that his role was an inspiration to Batman. Even though he never found work again, even though he holds the last remaining copies of the episode films and the show has been largely forgotten, he's remembered through Batman, and that means something to him. There's also a villain who remembers the show, too, a mad collector who uses an old bad guy plot from one of the episodes, and the Grey Ghost is given the opportunity to be a real hero and fight alongside Batman to stop him. It's one of the most touching episodes of the series, especially when the actor, Simon Trent, sadly has to sell the rest of his Grey Ghost memorabilia, his entire legacy, just to pay the rent, and then Batman buys it all back and it's in his apartment right where it used to belong next time he comes back. It makes Bruce Wayne more human, seeing him being a real kid and seeing him as an adult having a nostalgia for something from when he still had that childlike innocence. And Adam West brings a lot of dimension to the role. You can hear in his voice that the script is hitting home for him. He was that typecast actor too, never landing another major name-making role because everyone always thinks of him as Batman. He has a line here where he says that he can't get work because the networks still think of him as the Great Ghost. This episode means something even if you didn't know you were listening to Adam West, but it's a brilliant tribute to him, and it comes off as a gracious and classy passing of the torch. Number seven, Dreams in Darkness. Batman gets thrown into Arkham Asylum, originally heading there to try to stop a scarecrow plot, but already being affected with fear toxins, so he hallucinates Robin standing in front of the Batmobile and crashes it right outside the asylum. He's raving like a lunatic when the doctors find him, so they think he's insane and commit him, deciding not to take his mask off because, according to the lead doctor, that might put him into a canatotic state which is maybe a little contrived, but the rest of the material's too good to not let it slide. The thing I'm most impressed about is that we've got an episode where Batman's hallucinating, but he's not hallucinating the obvious thing. He really does get thrown in Arkham. The stakes really are as high as, if the Doctor doesn't believe him and let him out, Scarecrow is going to expose the entire city to his fear toxin so he can run a giant experiment on how people react to their greatest fears. Batman has to fight through various hallucinations, the whole episode, to get to and stop Scarecrow couldn't help but be reminded of the Arkham Asylum video game a few times, where he's hallucinating his worst fears while trying to traverse the asylum, and he even has to go underground into the sewer system. But the big difference is that he's not dreaming that he's committed, so he's actually living that fear for real, while also dealing with others' weird, abstract, dreamlike things, like seeing his parents walk away from him in the alley while a giant gun comes out of nowhere and shoots him instead of them, and in the sewer, he confronts huge versions of some of his greatest foes while each of their trademark themes plays behind them. A great move on Walker's part. It's hard to tell what exactly we're supposed to make of some of these hallucinations. I hate to read too much into them because some aren't as cut and dry as some of what we saw in Arkham Asylum. But the real point seems to be that Batman is a human being. and He has the same fears a lot of us have. The difference is that he has the mental focus and determination to push through them, as illustrated by his reaching right out and grabbing a wire while it looks like a huge snake. There's a lot of really vivid imagery in this one, and like a lot of other episodes on my list, it's one that really explores Bruce Wayne's humanity in the midst of bizarre and surreal situations that come with his uniform. Number six, The Man Who Killed Batman. This one is a perfect blend of comedy and drama, and again, an episode that focuses on a one-shot character, but is still very much about Batman. It's amazing how much story is packed into this 22-minute tale about a little man in the mob named Sid who romanticizes about being a big shot, realizes his dream when he seems to accidentally kill Batman. He's then known as Sid the Squid, and the whole Gotham underworld comes to think that he's the toughest guy in Gotham. He has one round of luck after the other, and each time it seems like it's good luck when it's inevitably bad. The Joker comes to him, and Steve 
stages a crime to see if Batman will show up, since there's no body, and when he doesn't and Joker believes Batman's dead, he holds a memorial service in his hideout that ends with Sid being thrown into the casket and dropped into a vat of acid, with Harley Quinn playing Amazing Grace on a kazoo. This is, by the way, one of my favorite Joker episodes. Sometimes less is more with the Joker. Despite his lack of screen time, what Mark Hamill has to do here is hilarious and twisted. Like Joker sicking Harley's hyenas on one of his thugs for asking a stupid question, and being furious at Sid for killing Batman so he can never, quote, one day taste victory over his hated enemy. And then after he thinks he's killed Sid, his whole mood changes when he says, well, that was fun, who's for Chinese? Joker's unpredictability is played for drama and comedy all in the same scene. We discover at the end that Sid doesn't survive the acid trap by happenstance like he thought, but that he was saved by Batman, who of course let everyone think he was dead so Sid would lead him to the leader of the drug ring he was investigating at the beginning, and that's Rupert Thorne. When Batman appears at Thorne's mansion, it's played up like he and Sid are seeing a ghost, with a brilliant church organ rendering of the Batman theme. Batman puts Sid away for being an accomplice to Thorne's drug ring, but he's not entirely unsympathetic and he seems to realize how in over his head Sid is and that he's really harmless. So he tells Sid that in the right atmosphere, a man like him could get a lot of respect. And when he goes to prison, that's just what happens. Sid is voiced by the great character actor Matt Frewer, with a lot more high-pitched and weaselly voice than he usually uses in his other roles, but it's unmistakably him. It's one of the most fun and unusual shows in the series. Number five, The Laughing Fish. When I think of Joker episodes, this is the first one that always leaps to mind. It's the perfect example of who the Joker is in this show. Unpredictable, scary, bizarre, inconsistent, and so funny to watch that even though he doesn't seem to have any humanity in him, we still can't help but enjoy watching him. He poisons all the fish in Gotham with a compound that gives them all his trademark grin, and an insane plot to copyright that grin and make money from every fish that's sold. He seems to have no motivation for this whatsoever. It's just another crazy plot so he can keep his never-ending dance with Batman going. Toward the beginning, Batman says the Joker's insane schemes make sense to him alone. By the end, it seems a lot more about watching Bullock and Batman squirm than it is about making money in an elaborate scheme. And it's interesting to see how Batman puts all the pieces together to find the Joker. It's a very good detective episode. It is one of the more disturbing images in the series where a man we think is Batman laughs uncontrollably on Joker gas. It's based on a Laughing Fish comic story by Steve Englehart, and it's cool that while this show created a lot of new versions of characters and told its own stories, it wasn't above doing adaptations of stories that came before it either. Number four, Heart of Ice. Mr. Freeze is probably the overhaul for a major villain the animated series gets the most praise for, and it's well-deserved. Tragic villains were a big trend for this show, people who did despicable things that couldn't be justified, yet a part of us felt for them anyway. Mr. Freeze was one of the first and one of the best, his wife frozen in cryostasis because of an incurable disease and another greedy jerk in a suit taking away his funding and his medicine, having no compassion for Freeze's plight at all because all he cares about is the bottom line. And this confrontation leads to the accident that gives Freeze a condition where he can only survive at sub-zero temperatures. The theme of this episode is compassion and the lack thereof. Mr. Freeze becomes hardened, and he's cold both physically and metaphorically. Because his old boss showed him no compassion and he lost everything, he now shows no mercy for anyone else. Illustrated best when one of his henchmen is accidentally partially frozen by his freeze gun, and Mr. Freeze leaves him to die. Batman, often also seen by others as cold and unfeeling, shows compassion on that man by bringing him back to the cave and finding a way to thaw him out. Alfred is surprised by this, since the henchman would certainly have killed Batman if given the opportunity. And I like that Batman doesn't feel the need to explain himself. His actions speak for him, and we see the difference between Batman and Freeze by the choices they make. I love the final image of Batman looking down at Mr. Freeze outside his cell. Despite the horrible things he's done, he feels for the man. 
It's not pity, it's compassion. Paul Dini came up with a definitive backstory for Mr. Freeze and made him a more liked villain than he ever had been before. It's a really tight story that helps set the standard for story structure and content for the rest of the series. Number three, I Am the Knight. This episode gets right at the heart of who Batman is, and it's about his reaffirming his necessity as a crime fighter. He wonders at the beginning how much good he's really doing. He says to Alfred, I put out a few fires, yes, but the war goes on and on. Because he goes to Crime Alley on the anniversary of his parents' death, he shows up too late to a drug bust to stop Gordon from getting shot, and he blames himself for Gordon's critical condition, as does Bullock. Batman starts taking an even harder look at his life, realizing just how much of a father figure Gordon is for him. He says that Gordon is the same age his father would have been if he hadn't been killed, and that has a really unique dimension to their relationship. Robin tries to remind him of his mortality, and says, you do more than one man is expected to. And then Batman has a line that I've always remembered since the first time I saw this, a really character-defining kind of line. Sooner or later, I'll go down. It might be the Joker, or Two-Face, or some punk who gets lucky. My decision. No regrets but I can't let anyone else pay for my mistakes. That's why he's always tried to be a loner. He knows the life he's chosen is dangerous, but what he does is partly because of the guilt he has about his own parents' death. If anyone close to him got hurt because of his actions or inaction, it's like he pulled the trigger himself. And then at the end, he stops the jazz man from killing Gordon in his hospital bed. Gordon wakes up and says, maybe if I'd been younger, I could have been like you. I always wanted to be a hero. Batman tells him he is a hero, and at that moment realizes that in many ways they're the same. Gordon chose this life. He risks his life just like Batman does, and it really isn't Batman's fault. There's also a great subplot where Batman helps a kid hustle on a street corner go the straight and narrow, and he realizes that the little victories are as important as the big ones. It's another really dense episode that makes you wonder how it's so well-paced with so much material. These guys could do a lot with 22 minutes. Number two, almost got him. This is one that fans always seem to point to as being a standout episode, and I have to agree. Again, there's a lot happening here. The framework is really clever. It's five villains, Joker, Poison Ivy, Two-Face, Penguin, and Killer Croc, playing poker and telling stories about the time each of them almost offed Batman. When one starts telling a story, we get a little vignette that plays out like its own mini-cartoon. And they're all really entertaining and told mostly through visuals. When we get closer to the end, we find out that the Joker story is still going on as we speak, as he has captured Catwoman as bait to lure Batman in. And Batman has has a surprise trump card that stumps the audience as well as the villains. He's actually disguised as Killer Croc, so he can figure out where Joker's hiding Catwoman, and they're surrounded by a whole posse of cops to back him up. And I love that image of Batman's shadow over Killer Croc's head, even though it doesn't really make any sense at all. The conceit of having different villains trying to trump each other with I Almost Killed Batman stories is fun, but the execution is even better. Each story is pretty preposterous, especially Two-Face's giant penny, which gives us the genesis of that Batcave prop and a cool little stun of fan service, and Poison Ivy's exploding pumpkins. When you get to kill a croc, who you don't know is Batman at the time, he just says, I threw a rock at him. Probably one of the funniest lines in the whole show. It's a great Joker episode. He does fun, again, twisted stuff like putting Batman on an electric chair and roasting weenies on it. And it's a pretty good Catwoman episode, where after she and Batman escape the Joker's warehouse at the end, she too says, almost got him. And of course, she means that romantically. I'd say it's the most fun episode in the series. 
And my number one is Perchance to Dream. Now, I don't know if this is anyone else's favorite, well, besides my wife, and usually I wouldn't put an episode that's all one big dream sequence at the top of the list, but this one's an exception. It isn't just a contrived scenario of what if Bruce Wayne had never become Batman. It's a lot subtler than that, and it's a great opportunity for some real character development. I think as much as any of the heavier exploring Batman psychology episodes. This is about how strong-willed Bruce Wayne is. From the beginning of the episode, it's pretty clear that he's dreaming. There's some cool misdirection with his getting the dream helmet put on and then a cut to him waking up, as if the helmet thing was the dream and now we're in reality. But as soon as things aren't adding up, we have to start expecting that maybe he's dreaming now. As soon as it's revealed that there's no interest in the Batcave and Alfred looks at him like he's crazy, and then of course, when Bruce's parents are alive. It's a really haunting episode as we follow Bruce closely through this unexplainable alternate reality he seems to have found himself in. Again, at first it seems like it's just going to explore what the world would be like without Batman, but then it gets really weird when Bruce, horrified, sees Batman out a window. That's really important, and I think that's why this episode is so smart. By the end, of course, we learn that this is a dream world created by a device that Mad Hatter invented to give you whatever reality you want most. He can't tamper with it, he can't even see what it looks like, so Bruce's mind is creating this all on its own. Because of his complex psychology, to be a world he not only wants to live in, but he would believe is real, it must have Batman in it. After all, he still remembers his parents getting killed, even if here they're still alive. So without Batman, he still might feel compelled to fill the void he believes is filled by Batman. But if there is a Batman, and if his parents are still alive, there's no need for him to devote his life to crime fighting. And so he begins to accept it, until something unavoidably makes him realize this isn't reality. He can't read any text because it's a dream. Apparently reading is impossible in a dream, which, as far as I can tell, isn't actually true. And that's kind of sad because this show gets science right more often than not, but at any rate, he has a choice, and he doesn't hesitate to make it. He can't live out his life in a dream no matter how perfect. His only explanation is, it's not real. And that's enough. He doesn't even allow himself to think about how great his new life is. He made a promise, and he's going to keep it. A lesser man might have tried to feign ignorance and just have the perfect life. And it tells us a lot about him that he doesn't even consider it. He'd rather risk the possibility of killing himself by jumping off the bell tower than live a lie. And I love it when, after Mad Hatter asks, what if you're wrong, Bruce says, then I'll see you in my nightmares. This one has the most atmosphere in the series to me, and regardless of already knowing how it ends, it's the one I've seen the most often, and I never get tired of it. Well, that's it for my top 10 Batman animated series episodes. A few honorable mentions, a bullet for Bullock, because of the fantastic jazz score and the really interesting dynamic between Batman and Bullock. Harley and Ivy, as those two together, are just a ton of fun, and the Clock King, because he's just such an odd villain and has a really bizarre motive. Thanks, as always, for watching, and join me next time for a review of Supergirl. Ba, ba, ba.